Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado, and with me is my co-host, Ben Peterson. Hi, Ben. Hey, Christopher. It's good to be back on the mic with you, and I'm excited to talk about Jonah. And we could talk about Jonah for hours, but our editors won't have it, so we can't do that. <laughs> and then there's Micah. This is one of those, like, Job, where you've really been looking forward to it. Yes, Indeed. There's a lot to say, and it, and there's a lot of commonalities between Job and, and Jonah, at least some. And then there's Micah, too, which is going to make it harder because we already have a lot to say about Jonah, and it turns out there's quite a bit to say about Micah, yeah. too. So let's get going here. First of all, with Jonah, you said you've watched the VeggieTales episode on Jonah multiple times, right? I have. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I've seen it. My kids love it, too. And my wife was singing the song, and I don't know that I agree with the song. Of course, it's VeggieTales, right? Uh, the point isn't that it really has anything to do with It's just a good show. <laughs> it's just fun, right? Yeah. 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 So, but we're going to talk about how we've been reading Jonah and how we might read it differently, how you might read it differently. We're not sure that we've been reading it correctly, huh, Ben? Mm. Well, I, I definitely a lot more opened up to me as with a lot of the other things this time going through it. Yeah. The symbolism, I mean, I knew Jonah was symbolic, right? But it is oh, yeah. way deeper, you know, even <laughs> literally, right? Than I realized. <laughs> that was a good pun. How about we start by dealing with the question, for some people, there's a question of whether there really was a person named Jonah who really was swallowed by a fish. Should we start there? Sure. There are a lot of elements in this story, like in Job and other books, that really tip us off that this is just a story. This doesn't mean it's not true, right? There are great truths to be found in these kind of stories because they're universal stories, right? They're stories of what it means to be human and to be related to the divine. And so that's what we're dealing with here. If there was somebody named Jonah who was swallowed by a fish, that's fine too. I don't think that's the case. But it doesn't change anything. The important thing that I want to do is I want us to talk about the meaning of the story, regardless of whether Jonah was a person. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, like you were saying, Christopher, it's pretty obvious that the intention of the author of this book wasn't to present to us some historical tale, whether that was true or not. There's other intentions of the author that seem pretty obvious. And again, they're not to tell some historical tale. Yeah. So what are some of our clues that this is, you said in pre-show discussion, you said it's crafted. Oh, yeah. Right? This is highly crafted. It's highly stylized. And this happened in Daniel too, right? The characters are somewhat cardboard characters. God says, go that way. And he says, nope, I'm going to go the other way. And he takes off. <laughs> and he goes, There's ironic characters. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What other clues can you think of, Ben, that, that tell us that this is crafted? The other thing, Christopher, is that the structure of the book is symmetrical. There's like a, a poetic flow to it with the themes. And so there's this structure to the story. It's a masterful narrative. It's got this deep symbolism. There's satire all over in it. There's hyperbole 
And then one of the central parts in it is this prayer of Jonah that he prays in the belly of the whale, right? And it's a stitching together. It's a collage of psalms that are all put together. And so that's one of the other things that we can look at and say, oh, you know, when the author is writing this, it's taking pieces of psalms and putting them together. Again, very masterfully done. But the readers of this, the audience of this book, would have known all those psalms already. They wouldn't have thought, oh, this is some new spontaneous prayer that's unique to this book. We know that these are psalms taken and stitched together, and there's a particular purpose behind that as well. That's a really good point, Ben. At the end of the story, there's this back and forth, this repartee between God and Jonah, Mm -hmm. which again reminds me of Job. And each speaker, God and Jonah, gets the same amount of words or verses. Isn't that right? Hebrew words, yes. Hebrew words. There you go. Maybe not in your translation. Same amount of Hebrew words. Although God does get the last word, of course. Yeah. And I love that that book ends with a question. Well, and in speaking of that, again, the author of this had a very firm grasp on Hebrew. This is a master of the Hebrew language, which is a little in contrast to what we talked about with the book of Daniel, where it seemed like the author wasn't quite as familiar with Hebrew as maybe their Aramaic. Yeah, they were pretending to to know Hebrew better than they did. So, okay, Jonah takes off. He thinks he's going to go somewhere where God can't see him, so to speak. And this reminded me of a Sufi story. And Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam, we can say, even though some say Sufism predates Islam and some say it's not Islamic at all. Or the mystical tradition of Islam, yeah. Right, yeah. You don't have to be uh, Muslim to be a Sufi. I'm a practicing Sufi. But here's the story. The Sufi master says to his disciples, take this lamb, everybody takes a lamb, and go slaughter it somewhere where no one can see you. And they all go off and they come back and one of them still has a lamb. The rest of them have done the deed. And the Sufi master asks the adept, he says, why haven't you slaughtered your lamb? And he says, I couldn't find anywhere God couldn't see me. There is nowhere you can run off to where God can't see you and slaughter your lamb or or get away from God. Why is Jonah running away, though? Because there are different reasons why he might be running away. I read interpretations from the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions on Jonah, and they're very different. I'll mention one reason, Ben. One possible reason is if he tells the Ninevites to repent, and they do, then his people look bad. There's sort of a nationalism in him in this in this interpretation, mm. right? He's worried that Israel's going to look bad because they don't repent, and Nineveh does. That's one reason. Can you think of any others? Well, the other reason might be because he's afraid of what happens in Nineveh. You know, later in the story, he does say, I know you're a merciful God, so I know that if I went there, they would repent, but I don't know what all it's going to take to get to that point, right? You know, I don't know how yeah. hard it's going to be. At face value, we can say, well, Jonah just doesn't want to do the work that it takes to actually call the people to repentance. Right. In one interpretation, Jonah is concerned that he's prophesying that something's going to happen, and that if it doesn't happen, that he will be a false prophet and worthy of death. And he even says at some point, and again, this reminded me of Job, that it would be better if you were dead, you know? Yeah, there's a sense in which, again, this is an irony or a satire on prophethood itself that Jonah challenges the role of prophecy itself. Like is prophecy to state the fact of some unavoidable future or is it a conditional pronouncement? If then Mm. is he supposed to go and say, this is going to happen regardless, or is he supposed to go and say, 
if you don't repent, this is going to happen. And we have both examples in the prophetic tradition. Sometimes we have prophets that say, if you repent, then the Lord will save you. Other times we have things that are like, it doesn't matter what you do, this is going to happen. I think of Second Kings where we had one king who was wicked and then you have some righteous kings that come later. But then in Second Kings, it says, but because of all the wicked things the previous king did, it didn't matter how righteous these kings were, we're still going to punish you because of the things that this wicked king previously did, right? And so yeah. it's like, these things are going to happen regardless. To that point, Jonah doesn't want to go and make himself a false prophet, like you said. Yeah. One of the interpretations of this book from medieval Islam around the Renaissance so you have that Jonah, he does go to Joppa, right? It makes it really explicit. He goes down, down. to Joppa. Mm-hmm. And then he goes down into the ship. When the storm comes, he's off in the, the rib. And that reminded me a little bit of back in Genesis, you know? I mean, around the story of the ark, right? We talked about the wing in the temple where the bride comes from. Yes. And that's called a rib. And we related that back to Adam's rib earlier in Genesis. There may be an echo of that in this text, too. I saw that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The author here is definitely pulling in books from Torah and doing an allusion to them. And that happens also when he falls in the sea and he's tangled in the reeds. And this is a, a reference, an allusion to Exodus and the Sea of Reeds, where the Egyptians become entangled in those, right? And that's not obvious when you read the kingdom yeah, translation yeah. because you get weed, seaweed, which makes sense in the ocean, but the original text actually reads reeds, just like in the Sea of Reeds, or which we call the Red Sea, but is the the Sea of Reeds. Yeah. Someone may not think that that's significant, but the fact is that well, there are certain words that are only used in certain contexts. And so right. when those words are used in different parts of the Bible, it's a blatant reference and allusion yeah, to and a literary that. illusion. Yeah, it's a literary allusion to that, and it's just obvious. It's not coincidental. Here's another example of the the ark. We know the ark that Noah built, right? But it turns out, again, it's not in your translation, but the same word is what's the basket that Moses is placed in. The original text has the same word for the ark and the basket. Okay, so he goes down, down, down. And then, by the way, they throw him in the water, and he goes all the way down to H-E double hockey sticks, according to the King James Version, right? Right. Now, we don't have a hell in our tradition. Sometimes we act like we do, but we really don't. There's outer darkness, right? There is spirit prison, and we can compare what's called the harrowing of hell in mainstream Christianity, which is when we say Jesus visits spirit prison in those three days, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the three and a half days going on here. We'll go into that. But Jonah goes down all the way to the bottom of the ocean, and then beyond that, again, looking for a way out of creation almost, right? Well, he's already in chaos if he's in the water when he's reluctantly thrown overboard by his travel companions. But he goes all the way down to shale. The word that's translated hell is shale. Usually hell in the Bible. In the New Testament, we can say it's Gehenna, mm-hmm. the Valley of Hinnom, which is, let's see, it's east of Jerusalem, right? Yeah, it's basically Hence, the landfill. That's the the fire and brimstone. That's the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth place. That's That's it. Yeah. So in this case, it's shale. Now, shale isn't really hell. It's more like Hades, and we didn't really place this book in time. Maybe we should do that. But we're on the cusp of a belief in an afterlife of the soul where you have a bodily experience after death. Mm. But he goes down there, 
And there's an ascent that happens. And typically when there's an ascent, it starts with a descent. And we see this, you can think of the LDS temple text as an ascension text, right? Yes. And so what's the first thing we do? We go and we actually go underground. You first go down and you go into the waters of baptism, right? And that baptismal font has eight sides and that's a symbol of rebirth. And the water again is chaos and you go and you're recreated, right? You go back into chaos and you come out a new creature. What about Jonah? A lot of us are reading it as they throw him overboard and then a fish comes up and eats him up. And that's not what happens. Right. Yeah. Now, when I said that, my daughter misunderstood me. She said, dad says a fish didn't come get him. I said, no, 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 hang on. That's not what I said. It doesn't happen right away. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when does it happen, Ben? So it's not so obvious in the text, Christopher, because as soon as they throw him overboard, then we get the Lord prepared a fish and you know it comes and swallows Jonah. But then we get the prayer of Jonah. And the prayer of Jonah tells us what happened before the fish swallows him. What happens is that Jonah sinks not just down to the bottom of the ocean, but to the bottom of the earth. It says the roots of the mountains. You know, he's completely encompassed. He's driven away from the side of the Lord. Yeah, he's completely buried. The bars close upon him forever. And then the Lord brings him up. How does the Lord bring him up? By the fish that he prepared. Right. So Ben, the the belly of shale isn't in the belly of the fish. Correct. Yeah. So that's part of how you might misread it, right? You might yeah. think, oh, the belly means the belly of fish, but it's the belly of shale. Okay. So the idea here is that, okay, he's in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. And that's the ascent because the fish swallows him and is bringing him back. That's the salvation that God has prepared. That's a rescue. Yeah. And in the Christian tradition, we compare Jonah and Jesus in that way. Yeah. But if there's a three-day, three-night ascent, then the idea is that there's a three-day, three-night descent. So if we string these out, we start at the beginning of a week and we count through this three days and three nights, then the fish actually spits Jonah out on the seventh day. Isn't that interesting? about that. It's a new creation. Again, this is the theme, right? Over Mm -hmm. and over in the creation, in the exodus, in the flood story, over and over and over. Yeah. So Jonah died and was resurrected. And that's the idea here. Now we've talked- Figuratively speaking, right? Yeah. We talked about how the resurrection is not a fully formed idea within the tradition at this point, but there is something going on. I mean, we've seen this, especially in Ezekiel where he saw the valley, right? Obviously, these are things that are happening figuratively or symbolically within the prophecies or the stories, but for them to exist figuratively or symbolically, they have to also exist in some way, in some hypothetical actuality, right? Some hypothetical reality for the symbolism to have any meaning to the people. And whether this is part of our depth psychology or whether it was a revelation that wasn't fully understood or fully revealed, you know, I have my own sort of the gospel according to Christopher, you know, is that God has been and continues to reveal himself to humankind very, very slowly. I think, you know, I don't mean to say that the stories that we that we say where God shows up, as a matter of fact, last time we said it may be more often than than the text indicates because someone may have added an angel of in front of the Lord. But I just don't know that anybody's necessarily getting all of it all at once. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
we're still trying to figure out. I say we still, that's us, you and me and, <laughs> and, and, and the listener. Today, we're trying to figure out, well, like, you know, in, in Micah, we get that, uh, that, you know, God is going to defeat Israel's enemies. But we read in Hosea 1.7 that God is not going to do this by military force, you know, not with horses or chariots or the arm of flesh, right, that, that, that people tend to rely on. So God's saying he's going to save us, but not by any of those conventional means that we would go to and think of. So this prayer of Jonah in the belly, now the text says fish, you know, and a lot of people like they throw in whale, right? Oh yeah. Um, well, he's got to fit in there, right? He's got to fit in there because it's like, oh, well, we've got to conceptualize this of a, of a whale. Yeah. And I, never mind, whales aren't fish, right? <laughs> yeah. It's always been a fascinating statement to me because it's like, wait, if you think this is a literal story, then it's a fish. It's not a yeah. whale. A whale is a mammal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and not big enough, right? And another thing is, and this is one of our clues too, that it's a story, right? Is that the hardest part of the story is, how did he get by for three days and three nights in yeah. the belly of a fish? How did he breathe? What did he eat? And of course, you know, you can say, well, God can do anything, right? That's, yeah. that's what people are going to say. But the storyteller doesn't care about that. He's not telling us how that yeah, happens. Because the naturalistic explanations isn't the point, yeah. Right, because it's not the point he's making. So he gets rescued from the bottom and brought up by this fish, and he's a new creation. That means now his attitude has been properly readjusted, right? Oh, a little bit, Wrong, it seems. Right? I know. It's like, <laughs> what's going on? It's, so, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on with Jonah after this, right? You said you were having a hard time with it. Well, it is strange because, again, this prayer that he offers within the belly of the fish is, as we said, a sort of a collage of psalms, and they're cut and pasted together. But these would have been familiar to the audience. I think the idea here is that the story of Jonah in one way is symbolic of Israel's exile and return. And so when they're in the depths of the ocean and God is saving them, the hymns, the prayers, those, those psalms, they're on the lips of the Jewish people, right? When they're in distress. Oh, yeah. It's just as the people in exile would have had the psalms in, in their hearts. And so that's Jonah there in the belly of the fish, even in the moment of salvation, this fish that is God bringing him up. Yeah. Just like the text doesn't tell us that he didn't get swallowed right away. We may have read it wrong when we thought it, he did, but we know from the prayer that, you know, this is happening later. At the same time, the text doesn't actually tell us that he repented. Yeah. We have the prayer. But that's post-repentance. It's evidence of repentance, but there's no actual repentance mm. showing up. And it's interesting that in the Islamic tradition, Jonah is seen as the, the epitome of repentfulness. Right? He really turns it around. There's a saying of, of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he, he cannot, nobody can say that they're better at repenting than Jonah. This is a paraphrase. Mm. Right? Jonah is the, the ultimate in repentance. And, and so one of the cool things about that for me that I think we can have some holy envy and borrow it is that for the Muslims, the prayer that Jonah says, which is different in the, in the Quranic account. It's not the, it's not the stitching together of Psalms. That prayer serves any Muslim who wants to repent. That's a go-to prayer. Hmm. Psalms work the same way for the Israelites, right? As you've pointed out. Yeah. You brought up the point, Christopher, that Jonah's supposedly repenting here. And we, we have this great prayer, whatever tradition it comes from, but then we don't see an actually a changed man. 
That's the funny thing about yeah. what happens next, right? It's very strange. Yeah. Or is it strange? I mean, do do we not, you know, when we're in the belly of the fish, so to speak, right? Do we not say lofty, beautiful prayers? And then when we're back on <laughs> land, are we not like, okay, I mean, everything's good, right? I, I think of the yeah. story of, you know, the man that's putting new shingles on his roof and and he he slips and is, is falling off the roof and he says, oh, God, save me. And, you know, just then his clothes snag on a nail and he says, oh, never mind, God, I got it taken care of, right? <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of the story of the people on the, on the roof when it's flooding. Do you know that one? And the, the people are praying for God to rescue mm. them. And a guy comes by in a boat and says, hop on, you know, I'll, I'll save oh, you. No, God's no, no, gonna no. God's going to save you, right? <laughs> then a helicopter comes and throws a rope down. It's getting, you know, the water's rising higher and higher. No, no, no. We, God's going to save us. And then they drown. And he's, God, what happened? We prayed to you. This is why I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. So what does Jonah do? This time Jonah does go to Nineveh, right? There's an interesting difference between the initial command of Jonah from the Lord and the Lord says, go and pronounce judgment upon Nineveh. And then the second time the Lord says, go and tell them the message that I tell you, right? Yeah. And so there is like this opening that the message this time might be something different than just judgment. I can't help but wonder if, if Jonah was uncomfortable with the thing he was first told to do. It's like, I don't even know what to say. You know, the prophets right. are always rejecting the call. And so the prophet rejects the call. You know, I don't know how to speak. I'm not good at speaking. This is Moses, right? You get a lot of this. Hmm. But again, you're pointing out that this is satire, right? So it's over the top. He doesn't just reject the call. He runs off to the other end of the earth, right? Yeah. Yeah, out of creation almost. As out of creation, yeah. yeah. It's either to the other end of the earth or down underneath the mountains, right? At the foundation of it all. Yeah. Beneath the foundation of it all, yeah. Yeah, there's hyperbole exaggeration throughout this. Mm -hmm. You know, he goes to Nineveh, and it says the city Nineveh is three days to walk across it, which is a, an obvious exaggeration of the size of the city. But the point is the number three, right? And, and what happens is... Jonah goes and it says he only walks a third of the way in to the city. He doesn't even get to the center. And then he just makes this like short little pronouncement, 40 more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? Now that overthrown word we'll have a discussion about, right? But the idea here being that he doesn't call them to repentance in any particular way. He just says this short statement, you know, he's just doing everything half-heartedly He's not really doing his job. And, you know, you said we we're going to go into this, that the city will be destroyed is one way that you could read it. Yeah. But the Hebrew is ambiguous. It really just says something's going to happen. Yep. Well, in 40 days, I'm going to prophesy here. In 40 days, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. <laughs> I guarantee it. I don't have to fear being a false prophet because something's going to happen in 40 days. Yeah. We talked previously, Christopher, about some of the clues that lead us to realize that this book is is stylized fiction, right? It's these satire, these hyperboles. So he gives this statement, and then the people have a moment of extreme repentance, right? The king of Nineveh, right? Which wasn't a thing. There wasn't a king of Nineveh. It would have been like king of Assyria. So that's one of the other clues here that we're just talking about a hypothetical king of Nineveh, not a historical king of Nineveh. 
it's like a profuse repentance. Okay, so they're all fasting, they're all sackcloth and ashes. In fact, they include the animals in this, as if animals have need to repent too. Yeah. This reminds me of, again, of Daniel, right? Where everything's just over the top. It's the greatest and the biggest and the strongest, the strongest guards. Everything's over the top. Those are some clues, right? Genre matters. When you read a text, you have to figure out what am I looking at here? And that tells you how to read it. And it's funny because you sometimes have to go into the text to figure out the genre, but then you would want to back out, start over, right? Not necessarily literally, right? But literarily, you've got to read this Hmm. according to genre. So then we have this interesting statement here at the end of chapter three, Christopher, that God changes his mind. All the time. Right? This is the Bible, Ben. Yeah. God's always changing his mind. Yeah. In fact, you know, we do see in the Old Testament that God changes his mind a lot, right? All the time. Yeah. He was going to do this evil, right? This great evil in this Uh book. And then he changes his mind. He repents. It it tells us he repents of of the great evil that he was going to do. Yeah. What is really going on? Is God changing his mind? Are the people changing their mind about how they view God and understand his judgment? Or is the prophet changing his perception of how God views the people and therefore how he views the people and himself? We see Jonah having this conversation with God, but Jonah himself doesn't really seem to have that change of heart, right? God just keeps saying, why are you angry? Why are you angry about what's going on? And Jonah is upset that God is a gracious God and merciful. He says, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's the chesed again. Yeah. It's mentioned right in here. And ready to relent from punishing, he says. Yeah. When you said angry, you reminded me, Ben, the text does tell us that Jonah was angry, right? In the Islamic tradition, that's the main thing. Jonah was the angry prophet who Mm. repented. In the Jewish tradition, there's two prevalent interpretations. One is he was just this guy who went astray and then turned it around. It's similar to the Islamic tradition, right? Another interpretation that's a little bit different is when he does turn it around, he is going to slay the Leviathan. Now the Leviathan comes. And this is, again, creation stuff, right? That's part of the creation myths in the ancient Near Eastern mythology, right? That, there, that there's this Leviathan to slay, and he's in, it's in the Bible. Job talks about it, and so does Psalms, but That's right. Job is, is Leviathan. Yeah. 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 So again, similar to Job, once again. This most delightful book really is the funnest book I've read since Job. <laughs> it is. And and I love, again, how it ends with a question. And in the spirit of that, the, the ending of the book, I love how you brought up a, a few possible interpretations there, and you didn't give an answer. Something to think about, right? The ending of Jonah is just strange to me. And I've it heard is. different explanations, you know, and trying to, to parse this out. And I don't think they're necessarily bad. I just, something still doesn't fit for me. And I don't yeah. know exactly what's going on here. Why Jonah has to persist in his being upset. What's going on with this yeah. plant that could be like a castor plant strange. or some sort of squash or something like that. That covers him and then it dies. And I under, there's a poetic structure going on here. And I, and I get that. I'm just trying to understand what's the intention of the author. What are we, what did the audience understand that he was saying to them about what is going on here about this situation? And my sense is we may not have access to that. You get the sense with the, the end of this text. That there's something strange going. And when I say strange, I mean, it's foreign to me. Yeah. I, I can't help but think that 
the audience that this was intended for, you know, that who this was written to. Maybe it's actually for us, but it's not to us, right? The audience that was written to that they would know what's going on here where we can't know. There's something strange going on. There's some ancient cultural Hebrew meme that's being alluded to here that we don't have access to. <laughs> it really seems like it. You and I have mentioned that there are many puns in the Bible. Uh-huh. And that's not the explanation here. Because I thought of that. I was like, wait, are there any puns going on here? That if, if I look at the original text, does that help? And it's no, it's not the case. But oftentimes there are puns. Just touching on Jonah, right before we go into Micah, there there was something I wanted to read from one of the commentators on this. Okay. Yeah. Again, one of the central themes here in Jonah is that of repentance. And this is from Yair Yazakovich. He says this. He says, God seeks to teach Jonah values more lofty than a prophecy's realization or a prophet's reliability. That is, the saving of God's creation when found worthy. This book, that is the book of Jonah, has a role disproportionate to its size within religious tradition. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, in my NRC, it's three pages. It's really short. It's it's very short, and yet this book is commented on disproportionate to its size. Ben, I'm really surprised that we're about to move into Micah, because we really could have talked about Jonah for three hours. Yes, I agree. And so I just want to point out to the listener, one of our sources in studying Jonah, we went to the Bible for Normal People podcast, and we listened to three episodes on the book of Jonah by Jared Bias, who's usually Pete Enz's co-host on the podcast, but sometimes these guys do solo episodes Mm -hmm. like you did when I first hurt my back. Thanks again for doing that. So that's out there, right? The Bible for Normal People. I first learned about Pete Enns from an interview that he did on the Maxwell Institute podcast. And he had his book, it just came out, you know, his book, The Sin of Certainty, Why God Wants Your Trust More Than Your Correct Belief. And that that's how I got turned on to Pete Enns. And I found out about his, about his podcast and I love it. It's really good stuff. Yeah. Jared yeah. Bias brought out a lot of good commentary and useful stuff for symbolism in the book of Jonah. And in fact, if you only have time for one episode, there's a fourth episode on Jonah where Jared Bias, maybe with or without Pete Enns, I can't remember, they actually covered or he actually covered Jonah in one episode earlier in the podcast. So either way. Yeah, it was a previous one. And then he did a longer three episode one. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go into Micah. Great. Okay. We should go into this major minor prophets thing, right? Yes. Micah's a minor prophet, quote unquote, but he's one of the greatest prophets along with Isaiah, contemporary with. And as important as Isaiah and others, right? So what do we mean minor? We just mean the writings that we have from him are short. That's it. That's what's meant by minor and major. It's not about the importance of the prophet. So Micah's contemporary with Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. And one of the things here with major and minor prophets, you know, we've mentioned previously that the placement of the books doesn't follow any sort of chronology. And the rationale behind some of the placement of the books, especially like within the King James, has to do with this distinction between major and minor prophets as well. They put the major prophets first longer, and then they put the minor prophets second. And then the way that they stringed the minor prophets one after the other, there's various reasons for doing that. Sometimes when a book ends on a particular theme or note, they'll then pick the book that starts up with that theme or note and and put that book next. Again, some of these purposes for ordering the books the way they did are they're not always consistent and they're sometimes kind of obscure and ambiguous and chronology is not necessarily a consideration in them. 
And so when we talk about major and minor profits, again, that is one of the ways that these are sorted. We put the minor profits later and the major profits before. But chronologically speaking, like we said, Micah belongs back with Isaiah as well as Amos and Hosea. So we're talking 8th century, pre-exile. Yeah, 8th century BC. There's there's this 100-year period where we have like what we might call classical prophet time. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these guys. Okay, so that's where we are time-wise. And who is Micah? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Micah, like some yeah. of these other minor prophets. We know where he's from. He's from the southern kingdom, Judah, right? Yeah. And not only that, but he has rural roots. A lot of what he's going to talk about are these overbearing policies of you know the political, social, religious policies that are just overbearing for, for the poor people. And so he can relate to that, his sort of personal experience of that. He's more of a, a, a marketplace or town square than a temple prophet yeah. or sanctuary prophet. The book of Micah has a particular structure to it. It could be a consequence of some later editing and redacting, putting different pieces together. Maybe there was this prophet Micah and he wrote or, or gave some of this and then other parts were grouped together with it because they had similar themes or talking about similar times. And so it's not clear really if, if Micah, if all of the book of Micah is actually Micah, Micah's words himself. But when they did editing and redacting, they did put it all together because all of these things had similar themes and they fit together nicely. And then the particular structure of the book starts off, you got like three chapters that talk mostly about judgment. And then you have another couple chapters that are talking about hope or salvation. And then the last couple chapters do an alternating between judgment and hope or judgment and salvation. And so this structure may have been an organizing method that was used by later editors of the book of Micah to, to put it together. Yeah, scholars aren't in agreement about the structure, but there's something going on with the structure there. And so you can see these texts, remember, we think in mainstream Christianity, you can't add anything. And so we're automatically, we're doing it wrong because we've added scripture, right? But these texts were added to. Yeah. They were added to, they were altered. This isn't the kind of, I think in our tradition, in, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we think that any and all changes are therefore some kind of, the truth was lost and this was, the Bible is the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. And it's interesting because we've already talked so much about Joseph Smith and translation, right? Yeah, this, this isn't. If we just wanted a better translation, well, you and I are already looking at one. We're already reading the NRSV, right? We're already reading Alter. It's not about that kind of translation. It's not about having better manuscripts and better translators. By the way, the King James translators were excellent translators. They did a very good job of translating the best manuscripts that they had. They just weren't very good manuscripts. Hmm. They're working from the Hebrew text that is a translation from the Greek that is a version of an earlier Hebrew, right? So there is that. And so there's that's part of the translation that could have been done incorrectly, quote unquote, right? But these texts, they were living texts, you know, there's, they just, they become ossified later on. And then we think, no, you can't add or change or take away. And by the way, every translator does inevitably, like the Italians say, once again, traduttore, traditore, right? The translator is a traitor because a translation, no matter how good it is, is never the original. And it's always going to, in some sense, betray the original. Those puns don't come through. That's one thing. The, the poetry doesn't necessarily come through or it comes through in a different way. You have 
all these problems of translation. And then any translation is interpretive. Our own theology is baked into our translation. Ben, you and I have talked about the chapter headings that our standard works, you know, our, our right. LDS standard works have. And reading through Micah in particular, we you mentioned to me, and I mentioned to you the same thing in pre-show discussion, that we couldn't relate the chapter headings to what we're reading. <laughs> yeah. You know, where, where are they coming from? And so that's scripture. You know, I've said this before, the sacred text is one thing, and it used to be scripture was the Bible. The word scripture in English meant the Bible. Later on, we came in, the world became smaller, we come into contact with other people's sacred texts, and then we start saying sacred texts. But then comes Jonathan Smith, and he writes a book and says, actually, scripture isn't a text. Scripture is how people read the text. It's funny because I used to tell my kids, don't read the chapter headings. That's not scripture. But now I tell them, that's scripture. Don't read the chapter headings. They're scripture. Read the sacred text. (laughs) Write your own scripture. (laughs) Write your own scripture. I do tell them that too. They should be producing scripture. And you know, honestly, I read introductions and sometimes even LDS chapter headings of standard works. But I like to read the text first. Yes. But we do. We interpret according to these certain lenses, our theological lenses. I mean, the whole Old Testament, Ben. You know, here we're coming to the end of the year almost. This whole thing, as Christians, we read it typologically, right? Whatever's going on here really is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Even though that's probably not, and, and not only is it not what the authors are intending, but even the authors of the New Testament know that. They're just trying to, they're just doing their job, right? And their job is to line up Jesus with all these events and make that, that whatever events, you know, were prophesied come true in Jesus, even though they've already come true, many of them. You know, what's been powerful for me, Christopher, on that approach is realizing that once I let go of this need for the Old Testament to all be about Jesus, all of a sudden it actually opens up to me more to see how it could be. Yeah. Because (laughs) I'm allowed to engage with it in a more authentic, free way, and I do see Christ in it in new ways that the insistence before didn't allow me to. Exactly. And I love that you said Christ. There's a distinction between Jesus and between Christ. And it is about Christ. And Jesus is Christ. And so I think what what you're saying, Ben, looks something like this. This isn't about Jesus. This is about Christ. Oh, and Jesus is Christ. Oh, so it is about Jesus, right? So it is and it isn't. But in order to get that, you have to you can come full circle on that, right? But you yes. have to let go of the preconception first in order to come back and really get a good grasp on it, I think. And then in the end, how does the line go? We we I just read this for the first time in the original. My wife was asking as I read it out loud to her, was Elliot quoting someone or is this where it, the line actually comes from? And since it was my first time reading the four quartets of T.S. Eliot, mm-hmm. I had to guess and say, well, this must be where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Sir Google can answer. And I think I did confirm that. But it's the line that says, and I, I, I'll have to paraphrase it, the line that says that we we explore and then at the end of all our exploration, we return to the place where we started and we know it for the first time. And we know it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Ben. So there's another thing that I wanted to mention here in, in Micah, introducing Micah, right? And that is that, and I actually want to read from my study Bible, from the commentary, okay? So this is under King Hezekiah. Under Hezekiah, Judah experienced an economic revolution. So my commentary, there's social upheaval going on here, okay? 
Back to the commentary. Wealth invested in the land led to the growth of vast estates and the collapse of small holdings. Wealthy landowners thrived at the expense of small peasant farmers. The shift from a bartering to a monetary mercantile economy increased the gap between the rich and the poor. Furthermore, many priests and prophets viewed their ministry as a business rather than a vocation and acted accordingly. And me commenting, Micah is going to call them out on this. Back to the commentary. Thus, Micah preached during a time when Judah was experiencing radical internal changes while living under the threat of a foreign military invasion. These are hard times for some people, not for everybody. The priests and the prophets and the merchants, they're living it up, but they're doing it at the expense of the poor. So this is once again the message of the prophets of these both major and minor prophets. What did you call them when we don't separate them by major and minor? The classical prophets, right? This is this is the 800s. This is pre-exile. This is and, and just like some of the other prophets we read, yes, there's mention of certain religious practices that you're getting wrong, that you're, you know, maybe not in terms of whoring after foreign gods, though that's one of the most common phrases used. In fact, my daughter said something, and I asked her about seminary one morning at breakfast. She said something about that they were something about learning about whores. And I said, well, honey, there aren't really any whores in the Bible. And then I said, well, wait a minute. Yes, there are. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you know, you, you have even a prophet's daughter-in-law pretending to be a whore so that he would visit her, right? So there's that. So there are whores, but usually in where we are now in the Bible, when we're talking about whoring, we're really talking about, it's it's a metaphor, right? You, you're praying to foreign guides. When prophets are giving prophecy pronouncements about things, this is metaphorical. Yeah. Yes. So that's what we're dealing with here. And so here you have Micah, he has this job to be, to preach the truth and to speak out against injustice and inequity and to offer the people some hope, you know, some salvation. So we get again, like you said, that pattern of judgment and salvation and judgment and salvation and lament. And, you know, it's back and forth, right? And I think, you know, we're going to go into some things here in different chapters, but I definitely wanted to go into chapter three in depth. Yeah, chapter three is where a good amount of the meat is. One thing I want to mention on chapter one is that if you look at verses 10 through 16, there is a pun in basically every verse of this section. Well, this is that chapter. But it's yeah. lost in translation. I mean, when you read it in the English, you don't see that there are these these puns. So again, just... Another point here that these books are often written, especially the prophetic books, there's poetry throughout them. And, and in some of the translations, you'll see the versification as well. And the, the poetry with these puns is meant to, to convey this message in a particularly in a poignant way, right? And, and again, yeah. some of that is just lost in, in the translation, unless you get those good footnotes that can explain every single thing. And even in my version with the commentary, it does not go through and explain the puns. Like I would have to go on Bible Hub and, and go and, and learn, go word by word and, and figure out what these puns are. Oh, yeah. I think they're actually explained in, in my, you know, so we're both reading. NRSV study Bibles. And so yeah. they have footnotes. And when we talk about commentary, that's most, and we have other sources that we look to, right? But this is, this is one of the main sources where we probably start. It's where you start, right? This is where I start. Actually, I start with reading Alter and then I go into NRSV. But if the listener wants to have a study Bible with, that has these kind of helpful footnotes that is 
still KJV, that's out there. You can get a KJV. The point is to get a study Bible that has these tools like these footnotes and commentaries and linguistic explanations, maps. And we have some of these things in our standard Historical context, yeah. Yeah, all of these things. We have some of these things in our in our own standard works, in our LDS standard works, but not all of these things. And you know, the we we're in a sense, Ben, you and I are in the cutting edge here a little bit with this approach that we're taking. And our intent is to give a nonviolent reading. That's what Latter-day Peace Studies is doing with this podcast. But our sort of the 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 method, right? The vehicle, the way that we get there is by first doing a little bit of deconstruction, right? Is to, we're bringing in historical biblical criticism to Latter-day Saints, not necessarily for the first time. You know, this has been done by scholars all along. You know, if you go over to the Maxwell Institute, you can even hear from Pete Enns, who's an evangelical, and find out about the Bible for normal people podcasts like I did. But we're seeing this. I mean, I, I hear people, people have told me, Ben, I don't know about you, how the NRSV translation is coming up in gospel doctrine class, hmm. you know, in Sunday school at church. So, so this is happening and that's exciting. And, and again, we can go through that and come out the other end with our faith intact, with the Christ present in the, in the Old Testament, et cetera, right? Yeah. We can come full circle. So there is, I'm going to have to now backpedal again. I, I shouldn't say anything categorically when it comes to the Bible, right? I was just, I was telling my daughter, <laughs> they probably weren't actually talking about horse, but then again, in verse seven of one, there's a polemic against idolatry, and it is described as harlotry or prostitution, and we've explained that, right? But there's also the possibility of sacred prostitution that was sometimes practiced at religious shrines, and those shrines are called high places, right? Yeah. So there is that. And by the way, somewhere in here, and I don't remember the exact chapter, but we're going to see the Asherim again. They're still there, right? The Asherim, the the groves, as they're called, and in the King James Bible are the representations of El's consort Asherah, right? The divine feminine in Canaanite religion and in popular Israelite religion, not just in Canaanite religion, popular Israelite religion. And, and the Deuteronomists may not like it, but Heavenly Mother's just not going away. No matter what the Deuteronomists and the priests say, she's still there. The other thing that shows up, I mentioned somebody was saying in Gospel Doctrine Sunday, last Sunday for me, they were saying that some of these books are easier to, to, you know, discuss with your kids because you can act them out. And I can't remember which book was being discussed. Oh, Daniel, right? Daniel last week. So we're recording this in advance, right? We're, we're several weeks ahead. So you can act it out. And I said, isn't that interesting? You know, there's precedent for this in the Bible of performative prophecy. And I mentioned, you know, prophets running around naked and whatnot. And yeah. people just <laughs> were just shocked. What is he talking about? And even there was a, the mom of one of, uh, I just picked up my kid from her house the other day. And I, you know, I talked to her in that context outside of church. And she's sitting near me and she's looks at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, what's right here? Isaiah chapter one, verse eight or so, eight through 16, right? You have the barefoot and naked which is a symbolism of mourning. So it's even possible, I suppose, that nobody was actually naked, but I have a feeling. So you're going to go into exile, the prophets are warning. What does that look like? You're going to be naked. They're going to strip you naked and march you to Babylon. And so the prophet actually strips naked and walks around showing you, right? Like you said, it's a performative prophecy. And this is what it looks like. My neighbor, you know, responded, starting to see a pattern here in Old Testament prophets, so which is an important distinction, right? This is what, not, not what prophets look like today, but prophets haven't always worn white shirts and ties. 
Sometimes they were naked. <laughs> so chapter two, Micah goes in and he's condemning the injustice of all the creditors because they're foreclosing on these family farms. They're oppressing the poor. This is what we talked about previously. So that's the main theme of chapter two here. Yeah. And in two five, you get that there's these people who are, you know, they're guilty of being covetous and they're amassing all this property and it's not their own, right? And they're actually destined to lose everything. I wanted to point out that the assembly of the Lord, as it's at least in NRSV translation, assembly of the Lord, this is the religious community of Israel. It's similar to when we say church, church actually goes back to what? It's the house of God, something like that. But if we look at ecclesia, which is the 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 Latin root, and that's where you get iglesia, which is the Spanish for church. And the Italian similar, right? Yes, iglesia. Igreja in Portuguese. I mean, th- then you get that it's the community, right? It's the gathering. It's an assembly, actually. It's an assembly. It's the same word as, you know, when Socrates goes to the assembly for his apology, right, to defend himself against the accusations that have been made against him, right? That's the assembly. So, Ben, if you'll read from KJV, let me just, I'll introduce a couple things, right? So, in the first 12 verses, you get a speech, and this paints a really gruesome picture. It's about social injustice. It's about political and religious decay. And it tells us a little bit about the prophet and his mission. There's a little bit of prophetology here. And it really has, you know, it's, you could divide it up in four parts. I won't go into detail about that, but it's really just this, this screed, right? Against the social injustice and the political and religious corruption that, that is going on. And specifically in one through four, you get an address to the political and religious leaders, and they're compared to savage butchers and voracious cannibals who treat people like animals to be consumed. How does that read in the King James translation? And I said, Here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron. And then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Mm. So that's the political and religious leaders. In verses 5 through 7, he's going to take on the prophets. The prophets, guys. I mean, I think a lot of times we, we read these stories, right? And we think, oh yeah, them. The question we have to ask ourselves is, Lord, is it I? Mm. Is it me, right? Is it my prophet? Is it my priest? Is it my the guy I voted for, Right my religious leader or my political leader, because this prophet's going after all of them and they're all in on it. There's this rampant corruption. So now we have the prophets. Micah's going to go up against those guys and say, look, you guys are corrupting the prophetic office for personal gain. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths they even prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, 
and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded, yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. So you have a deep mourning there, and when there's darkness, that means no prophecy, not legitimate, not illegitimate, nothing. I love how there's a contrast between peace and war, Ben. We said that there's, this is a time of peace. There's no actual, there's a threat of invasion, but there's no actual war going on. And so there's something going on here metaphorically. And the peace that's spoken of, this is Hebrew shalom, like Arabic salam, right? And shalom, if people don't know, it means so much more than peace. Shalom includes wholeness, well-being, integrity, safety, peace. It's all of that. It's so much more than just peace. And so you're saying there's peace, but it turns out, yeah, there's not war right now, but there's also not wholeness, well-being, integrity, right? There's not those things. And therefore, it may as well, let's call it war, right? Let's call a spade a spade. And so the war is mentioned as a metaphor. In verses 9 through 12, he's going to go back to the leadership again, and he's going to say what the crimes of Jacob and Israel are. And this time, he's going to indict the priests along with the corrupt leaders, rulers, and prophets. So now it's the priests. You know, Christopher, you mentioned about peace. It made me think of the scripture that says, you know, you hear of wars in foreign lands and you say that there will soon be wars or rumors of wars, but you know not the hearts of men in your own land. Like, mm. so this just to me means like, you know, they're, they're thinking of war or conflict as being something they hear about elsewhere, right? And, and at the time here, they're thinking, oh, the, the Assyrians or, or whatever, they're, they're doing their thing, but we're safe here. We're at peace. We don't have this conflict. But what is really happening is the conflict that's brewing among the people, the conflict that's happening between the rich and the poor within society, this stuff is starting to brew and heat up. And there's not really peace within the hearts of people in their own country, even if they think they're not really at war they are starting to be at war one with another in their hearts. Indeed. And so we're back to Confucius and Hierocles again, right? Hmm. Where, where if you want to have peace internationally, you have to have peace nationally. And if you want to have peace nationally, you have to have peace in your family and you have to have peace in your heart. So let's hear what he has to say to the priests in 9 through 12. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Man, so we're, they're building Zion out of blood. You're talking about actual building, right? This is, our, this is an archaeology testifies to this, right? That they had these, these building activities going on at the time in Jerusalem. And this is done at the expense of the poor. They're, they're building, when they say on blood, it's on the blood of the poor. And then 
they brag and they sort of flaunt their piety and they continue with the injustice. And they're like, oh, the Lord is with us. No, the Lord is not with you. He's somewhere in here. It tells us that the Lord's response is to hide. And he's hiding his face from all this. In verse 12, we get the severest of judgments, right? What happened to Samaria is going to happen to Jerusalem. There's Most of the themes of this whole book are in that chapter. We still have some things to say about the rest of the book, right? Yeah, you know, this idea of building, building Zion with blood, mm-hmm. Christopher, also makes me think of the references we had in, in previous books to the sacrifices that were being made. I believe it was in Hosea where it might have been Amos or Obadiah. You know, I'm starting to get all of these confused. Yeah. Well, and there and a lot of these prophets are saying the same thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's a there's a point in which it says, you know, that the the sacrifices are being used just to enrich the priestly class, right? And oh, yeah. and they're being used for sin. They're being used as as an excuse for sin. And so it's like, oh, I can sin because all I have to do is then just go do a sacrifice. So then sacrifice then incentivizes sin. And so oh, yeah. I see this here building Zion out of blood as this, hey, they're taking these sacrifices, these offerings of the poor, right, to enrich themselves and yeah. and they're they're building quote unquote Zion because that's the uh, that's the symbolism of Zion is that mount and it, you know by abstraction the temple and 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 everything that happens there out of those offerings of the poor but it's not actually you know fulfilling the purpose of of that you know and and earlier in these other books that we've been reading again Amos and Obadiah that we just talked about last time the that is condemned. You know, I, I hate your sacrifices, right? Because they have now become a corruption. They now are are counterproductive towards the whole purpose that they were instituted for in the first place. Yeah. You remind me uh, on a more positive note, turning this around, you know, other instances, right? So the polemics against child sacrifice in the Bible, no matter how much child sacrifice was going on, however much or little, right? The polemics themselves cause it to be less. The, the, the work that the prophets do and saying these things and pointing out the injustices actually make a difference. Hmm. Right? We can see that. Like we can look back and we can see, look, they were saying these things against child sacrifice and child sacrifice went down. You can see a, a correlation there. So we have in chapter four, a prophetic vision of the future, right? That promises peace. Now again, we already had peace meaning there wasn't war and Assyria wasn't actually invading, even though they were threatening to invade. So what are we talking about? We go back to what you said, Ben, right? It's not just not having war that gives us peace. And and you don't have to be a Hebrew speaker for this to apply to you, right? I think not just shalom, but peace has to be more than the absence of war. Yeah, I think the idea here is that just as peace isn't going to originate in some foreign country and be brought to you. The idea is that war doesn't necessarily initiate in some foreign country and brought to you, even if, you know, objectively that may be what we observe. It first starts in your heart. And that's what's happening here among the people. And that's what the prophets are prophesying against, is that division of the people, the oppression of the poor, and so forth. This, This war, this state of war that's happening within the hearts of the people. So these prophets, you know, they can read the writing on the wall 
and they understand human nature, right? They know that if the, that they don't have to wait till things get so bad. And I was reading a book, I was rereading a book today, The Power of Writing It Down by Alison Fallon. And she mentioned an addict she was working with who was writing a memoir and didn't make it, unfortunately. He didn't finish the book. He died perhaps from his addiction, addiction she didn't specify. But he mentioned that, where does this idea come from that we have to wait, that the, the addict has to hit rock bottom before we can help him? In what other scenario do we wait till things get as bad as possible before we say something? That's <laughs> just not how we do it. And so the prophets here, they are looking ahead, right? That's the idea, right? They see the writing on the wall. They see what's in the hearts of the people. They can do the math on this stuff and they can say, this is what's going to happen. So they're inspired in that way, right? Yeah. So we have this vision described by Micah in verses three and four. We read those verses from KJV. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. Man, as Rob Bell would say, come on! <laughs> this is good stuff, huh? So there's going to be peace, but non-violently. Right. There's not, it's not peace that comes through victory. That was the Roman project. It's peace through justice. That was, that was the Christian project and not just the Christian project. That was the project of the prophets of ancient Israel. They're calling for justice because they know that justice brings peace. So we need justice to have peace. And that has to begin again with the man in the mirror. Right. It's in my own heart. I have to find peace in my own heart. And I have to create peace in my own family and in my community and in my nation for there to be this, this peace among nations that's mentioned in verse four, right? And that's mentioned, by the way, that's the, the images of your vines and your fig trees. I mean, this means long-term stability, peace and prosperity. Mm -hmm. right? That's how that happens. It takes yeah. a long time to develop that. Yeah. The other thing to mention here is that this is also almost identical to Isaiah chapter two some verses in Isaiah chapter two. And so I kind of had the question in my mind, okay, Isaiah and Micah are contemporary. Is Isaiah quoting Micah or is Micah quoting Isaiah? <laughs> mm, good question. In 11 through 13, Ben, we get once again that nations are going to come to wage war against Zion, but Zion will prevail against these nations that come to war against it. But again, we already saw in the verses you just read, it's nonviolently that this happens. And in Hosea 1.7, once again, it's not by horses or chariots or weapons. This is not how it happens. We're looking to the we're, how How is it Spencer W. Campbell put it? President Spencer W. Campbell called it the false gods we worship. When we should be pro-kingdom of God, we're anti-enemy, he says. You can't be anti-enemy. You have to be pro-kingdom of God. You have to be pro-peace. That's how you do it. Yeah. Chapter 5 is also the prophecy that is referenced by Matthew saying that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Oh, yeah. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Especially since there's this other word here. I don't even know if I can say it, Ben. Ephratha? I don't know. Right? So it's, it's no, it's, it's, what is the text read? Is it a, Ephtrapha Bethlehem or Bethlehem Ephtrapha. They're, they're together as if it were one thing. And we're not really sure, like scholars aren't really sure what Ephrathah was. It could be an older name for Bethlehem. 
or it could be that it was another town that got subsumed, you know, that got kind of eaten up. You know how this happens, right? Where one town takes over the other town. Now, of course, Bethlehem, you know the song, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem, right? You've been there, right, Ben? I have not. Oh, okay. So I, I went to, when, with my cohort, you know, studying Arabic in the Middle East with BYU, just like you did. We actually went to Bethlehem and Bethlehem is a little town. It still is to this day. It's just a little town, but at some point it could have taken in, it could have absorbed this other town, which is kind of ironic because then David didn't come from that town, <laughs> but he does come from Bethlehem. So you can just read it as Bethlehem. But again, the, what the New Testament, I can't wait to get into that. We're going to start with Matthew, and nobody knows his Old Testament like Matthew. Right. And nobody knows his Greek rhetoric like Matthew. You know, I mean, this, so we're, we're, we'll go into that next year, but they're making it so that Jesus is the Christ. And therefore, all the prophecies that have to do with the Christ fit Jesus's life. But they know, they know that, again, Matthew knows his Old Testament. He knows that a lot of these prophecies have already been fulfilled. Prophecies can have multiple fulfillments, and and visions and and their meanings can be polyvalent. We're really big as as Americans, and Latter Day Saintism is American. I mean, in origin, right? We're really big on having the one right answer, but it's not always the case that there's one right answer. There are multiple fulfillment prophecies. There are polyvalency. Uh, there's polyvalency and in interpretation of prophecies, and there are different situations and scenarios that call for different answers. If you're a parent, you know not all your kids are the same and you cannot treat them all the same. Now, you treat them all justly. And in that sense, it's the same, right? But you don't talk to them all the same way. You don't deal with all situations in the same way. In verse 10, Christopher, of chapter 5, we get another pronouncement of the, the doing away with, with weapons of war, right? So, in that day, says the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. This is a pronouncement that Israel must rely on the Lord, not on military force in order to prevail. Then we get the sacred poles again. I said earlier groves. I forgot about poles. So whether it's groves or poles, you're looking at Asherim, which are representations of Asherah, who is the consort of El. Before Asherah and El and Asherah's son, who was called Yahweh, by the way, right? The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Jehovah, some say. They gave that name to El, to the Father God, and did away with the son and the mother. And so these sacred poles, they were a representation of the divine feminine, the mother goddess. And they seem to be symbolisms of trees, right? And so oh, yes, this is of sort course. of a, an allusion to the cosmic tree as well, might, might go yeah. back to that type of... That's of right. representation, of which life. Yeah. I was interested to find out recently, Christopher, and I don't know why I hadn't come across this before, but there is in, in ancient Chinese mythology reference to the the great mother of the West, which is a tree. Anyway, it's just, just interesting to me. You know, this reminds me too, Ben, that the apple, which, you know, the, this, the fruit in the garden that's eaten from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not specified in the Bible. But it so happens that in the Christian tradition, it's thought of as the apple, right? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, apple was really a word that just meant fruit. Right? Yeah. So there is that. <laughs> but it turns out that that apple is a sexual symbol. And so if, if you've had intimations or hunches 
about something sexual going on with the eating of the apple, you're on solid ground, Might symbolically <laughs> speaking. Yeah. 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 So that's something worth looking into if you haven't looked into it is the, the symbolism of, of the apple. And that's something that came up today as I was reading Sappho, actually, the ancient Greek poetess of Lesbos, one of the most famous poets in all of Western poetry, really, and sadly survives only in fragments. They're, they're dealing with a goddess, right? And those really spoke to me, those poems that, that are to the goddess. So the only thing I wanted to mention about chapter six, Christopher, is verse eight. And some of the commentary calls this a seminal summation of Israelite prophetic tradition. So here it says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The kindness here is chesed, by the way, again. Yeah, see, this verse lays out true religion. Yeah, It's right there in black and white. Justice, kindness, right relationship with God, walking humbly, and, and, and that these are all preferred to ritual sacrifices, which it, we don't have ritual sacrifices in, in our tradition. So please understand, this is preferred to all ritual, right? Hmm. It's... It's, it's not about ritual. The ritual, it's important to have this outer shell. Don't get me wrong, right? We, ritual is important. But the, the importance of ritual is that it's a container. The shell contains an inner kernel. And that's where true religion is. That's where chesed is. That's where loving kindness, that's where that relationship between, between us and the divine lives and exists. And again, it's protected by that outer shell, right? We, of course, we have to live a moral life, but there's more to getting close to God than living a moral life. You have to actually seek God and you have to actually, you can't just pray and go to church and take the sacrament and get baptized. You have to act with kindness, with justice and right relationship with God, humble, all these things. And I'm talking to myself here, by the way. I've got a mirror in front of me. I've got a mirror right here. <laughs> you know, Christopher, you say we don't have ritual sacrifices. I think, you know, in one sense, that's true. In another sense, we have a ritual that's symbolic sacrifice, right? So we've, yes. we've put another layer on top of that. So kind of that's the idea behind the sacrament. And then right. in the Book of Mormon, it says, you know, no more do we do the sacrifice of your blood, but this is what I require, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So yes. this is this is the inner sacrifice, so to speak, that we now offer to the Lord that is very consistent with this verse, right? Yeah, and that's us sacrificing our will to God. Right? The only thing that we're, that's really ours, he gives us our agency. And if we want to give something back, what else can we give? That's all we have. That's ours, right? Our agency. We can choose to love God and we can show it by loving each other. So backing up, Ben, I was reminded of Job again because there's some legalistic language here. Right In the beginning of this chapter, the first few verses, first five verses, you've got this covenant lawsuit going on. The prophet's the attorney. He's representing God's case against the ungrateful people. And, and by the way, he, he actually calls on the natural elements to testify, right? They cause them as witnesses. This reminds me of a, a great medieval Islamic story, which is the, it was written by some Neoplatonists in, I want to say in the 900s. They were called Ikhwana Safa, the brethren of, of purity, brethren of purity. And they wrote this story called the case of the animals against Man in the court of the king of the jinn. That's me making my own translation. It may not be published in that way, but you can find it in English. <laughs> uh, 
and it's fun, right? Because the the animals testify against the men, huh. and and the question is, well, why you know why is man better than animals? Okay, you can do things that we can't do, but we we can do things you can't do. So here, the natural elements are invoked as witnesses. And by the way, in today's world, it would not be hard for a prophet to invoke the earth itself to testify against man, would it? We do see that in scripture elsewhere. We get a little bit of that in 3 Nephi, but then my first thought was in Moses chapter 7 with Enoch. I believe it'd be chapter seven, the vision of Enoch, and he sees the earth, and it's the earth that says, "Woe is me," you know, because yes. the, the wicked uh, right. dwell on on the face, and you know, and when shall I rest? Which is actually also an allusion to a part within, I think it's Jeremiah, if I remember mm. correctly, where Jeremiah calls out, you know, the earth is is groaning because of the earth is weeping or or something like that because of the wickedness of the people. So. Yeah. When we go from the Old Testament, as we call it in our tradition, or the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, we still won't be any more biblical scholars than we are now. <laughs> but but we'll know the Old Testament as, yeah. we, as we discuss the New Testament. And same with the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. So in the next couple of verses, three through five, God now acts as a plaintiff, and he's going to put forward his charge against the people. Oh, my people, he says, right, over and over. And that gives us, you know, little poignancy to the thing, right? And then he's going to complain and he's going to make allusions to Exodus in verse four. Surprise, surprise, Exodus again, right? And then I I love this in verse seven. I'm not sure the atonement is in, in a very real sense a mystery, right? I don't know why it functions the way it functions exactly. I think it could be something to do with history and the way that we think, right? It may not be that that it's God's mind that we're seeing enacted. It could be our own minds enacted for our sake by God, right? So in verse 7, we read, give my firstborn, right? Human sacrifice may have been practiced in Judah under Kings Ahaz and Manasseh. And we can read about them in 2 Kings 16.3 and 21.6. And again, I mentioned that the polemic of the prophets against human sacrifice actually helps it go down or helped it go down, right? It did, in fact, in history. But you also get a sense here that it's not actually a good thing to give your firstborn. And so if it's not good for man to do that, why would it be good for God to do it? You know what I mean? It's If God is doing this, we asked the question, I think, at one point, Ben, who is the atonement satisfying? Maybe this was with Riley on our sister podcast, right? We've we've discussed that question multiple times, but you guys have as well, yes. That's true. So maybe the answer is to satisfy our demands, right? This is the way we think it's supposed to work. By the way, not you and I, Ben. We don't think that anymore, but that's because we're Christian. Right? <laughs> Before Christianity, there was this. And, and, and in antiquity, this is what people did. You know, I mean, sacrificing your son, your your firstborn son. And by the way, one of my favorite explanations for this, for anybody who wants to take the time, is to go into Jordan Peterson's lectures on the Bible. Fabulous. I love YouTube, Ben. Here's Here are these lectures that people paid to go watch in an auditorium somewhere. And I would have loved to have been there in person. But then again, I get to watch it for free on YouTube. Yeah. You've seen it too, right? Yeah, he has some some great insights there. You know, yeah. Christopher, you're you're talking about the the concept of the atonement and who is it that it's satisfying here. I believe I want to say it's Brian Zond. He he has some good good statements about this. Too. He says, you know, Christ came not to change God's mind about mm. us, but to change our mind about God. Yes. Right? Come on. I love yeah. Brian Zond. Zond? 
Zahn because it would be it's a German, you know. Z a h n d is that right? Z a h n d, yeah. So. Yeah, check him out too. Real quick, in ten and eleven versus ten eleven, we get people cheating with fraudulent weights and measures. Right? There's a rhetorical question about it. Another way that they're oppressing the poor. Mm -hmm, yeah. Exactly. That's what I was going to get out there. Yeah. Not sound money. <laughs> yeah, not sound money. Thank you. So seven's the last chapter, Ben, and. In the first, you know, six verses, you get this lament. We talked about how there's, you know, it goes back and forth between judgment and salvation and judgment and salvation. And then there's lament. And here you get this lament. It's not the whole chapter, right? We go back and forth sometimes between chapters, sometimes within chapters. I think it's important to note in verses five through six, Ben, that as, as my commentary put it, normal human relations, this is a quote, even among family members have ceased for lack of trust. Once again, this is back to what you were saying earlier, Ben, right? All is not well in Zion, right? The people are in their hearts. There's not shalom, right? There's not peace. There's not integrity. And so it's already, it's already happening that in their family, there's not. So of course, there's not going to be in the city and there's not going to be in the nation and there's not going to be in the world. The last thing we end with is hope, right? Yeah. And that's a good place to end. It's right? a good place hope. to end. Not all books end that way. No. <laughs> Some men with a question, which is an, another great way to end. Yeah. Yeah. I love Jonah. Anything else, Ben, from you? In any case, I'm, I mean, I'm amazed how much we, we talked about Micah. I, yeah. I didn't realize how much <laughs> there was there in that book. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. It's good we kept Jonah short. There's so much to say about Jonah. Listen, come join me for Come Follow Me study group Sunday morning when we talk about Jonah. Uh, yeah. It's going to be good, I promise. So Sunday mornings at eight o'clock, eight to nine Pacific. Oh, by the way, Ben, I learned that my ward is changing times at the beginning of the year. We may have to have another host or change the time or day. That's another Something. possibility. Yeah. Reach out to us if you have a, a day or time that you'd prefer. But come Sunday morning if you can, 8 to, 8 to 10. Otherwise, you know, if you want to discuss this further, when we post it on Facebook, comment there. If we post it on YouTube or when we post it on YouTube, comment there. Send us a message, smoke signals. Facebook messages, whatever works for you. I've got plenty of Google juice. You can find my email address and phone number and you can call me or text me or whatever. We're open. We get messages. We're we hear from you and we reply and we're happy to answer questions or hear comments that we would love to hear from you. Please reach out. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to our editors. Sorry, this one's a little bit longer. Hopefully there's just so much good stuff in Micah that, that we don't, weren't really <laughs> aware of. And, and we tried to keep it short on Jonah guys. Thank you. And thanks to Bethany for being there for us for social media. And Des, you know, I've, I haven't mentioned Des before. Des is the one posting every Sunday. She posts that link for me for the, the Zoom link. People are always asking about the Zoom link. It, it's the same link, right? It doesn't change, but it helps if you can easily find it on our Facebook page, which Ben knows the name of. What's it called, Ben? Yes, it's Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. That's a group where actually people can join and have discussion and everything. And then there's our page which is just Latter-day Peace Studies. Thanks, Ben. And thanks for doing this with me. I couldn't do it without you. Likewise. Even though I have. I didn't, you know, it wasn't the same. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to model humility here, not pride.